Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. I'm so grateful you're here. And we're starting today's show on a very appropriate topic. That topic is anticipation, getting back on the road and thinking about it. And here to discuss that with me is one of my favorite guests. She is Stephanie Rosenblum. She writes a lot for the New York Times. She has a terrific article out now called Travel and the Art of Anticipation. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show, Stephanie. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. So anticipation, I think we all are deep into that. But what does that mean in terms of travel? How how high should we set our hopes? Well, one of the things that's really interesting is social science has looked at anticipation across a variety of activities, and travel is a big one. And they've studied this, and they have found that even thinking about a future getaway yields a lot of really interesting benefits. And that if we cultivate anticipation, like if we actively try to think about a place we might want to go do research, read about it, look at photos, this can actually begin to give us that vacation feeling even before we take a vacation. And that vacation feeling, one would assume, is good. Is this So is, does anticipation yeah. equal happiness then? Anticipation actually has been shown to give us a happiness boost. Uh, and so, you know, the the whole idea of this is that you want to, you know, that thinking about positive things creates positive feelings. That's the, you know, that's the short answer. But you have to have a certain type of anticipation. I thought this was really interesting. In your article, you said, you can't be looking forward to the travels you'll do once you're retired, if you're in your 40s. That's not going to do it for you, right? That, yes. It's an interesting thing that uh, one of the scholars, Elizabeth Dunn, who I spoke to as a psychologist at the University of British Columbia, was telling me that we tend to think of our this, you know, our future selves as other people, particularly your, your future self, if retirement is not around the corner for you, then that future self doesn't really feel real, right? So you want to have a runway for anticipation that is reasonable. So let's say we're talking about like a year. And so in a weird way, this moment may be the perfect amount of time for anticipation because, you know, you can start to think like, I may not be ready to travel right now, but maybe things will look very different in a year from now. And I can still, the you know, the me that Hopefully I am. Hopefully six today, months. So oh, don't give us know, a year. <laughs> I'm trying to be. Um, this you'll be, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Right, <laughs> right. But, you know, the you that you think of taking a trip, let's say in six months, is still you, not the you who you envision like 20 years from now. So that's why, you know, when you're anticipating, you want to keep the time frame, you know, let's say uh, at least, you know, under a year. And this is active anticipation in a That's certain right. way. So so explain what that means. Well, that means, you know, you want to think about, uh, you know, doing certain activities, right? Like you want to actually, uh, you know, go online and let's say there are movies set in the place you're thinking of going or... Uh, there are poems written by, you know, poets from that location. You want to just sort of bathe in the place, even though you're not yet in the place. And that is, you know, one, just a fun thing to do in general, but two, sort of gets you in that state of mind. And what's great about that is even, let's say for whatever reason, even if it's non-pandemic related, you have to postpone a trip, you're still getting the benefits of anticipation. You're still getting that happiness boost. And that's already in the bank. You know, that is not something that you lose if for some reason you have to change the trip date. 
I remember reading about, this was maybe five or six years ago, there was a study about anticipation and travel. And they looked at whether people were happier before a trip, during a trip, or after a trip. And according to the study, the people were happiest before the trips. Yes. That, that you never can be let down by what you're anticipating will happen, but you can be let down by reality. And boy, it's a bummer to come home. Yes, that's exactly right. So you also can involve other people in your anticipation. And yes. this too is a blessing. Yes. And it's one thing that's really, you know, maybe people don't think about is reminiscing as well as anticipating is a way of, uh, you know, increasing your happiness. And so, for instance, if you are thinking of planning a trip, a road trip in the United States, one thing you can do is call a relative or, you know, or a friend or anybody, especially at these times who may be, you know, feeling a little bit isolated and ask them about some of the, you know, if they've gone to the place you're thinking of going about or what are their favorite places? Because, uh, you know, as uh, Dr. Dunn, who I mentioned in the article, had said, it's a real gift to someone to ask them to talk about their experiences. It makes them feel less alone. It gives you that benefit of, you know, learning about the places they've gone. And all of a sudden, you're involving someone in your trip, even if they're ultimately not the person going with you, right. you're actually using your travels to to do that. Yeah, I was at a, a parent Zoom a cocktail party the other night, and I, I think I'm the most popular person at these things nowadays because everybody wants to tell me about their former travels. I think we're, we're all so dying to get back on the road. Uh, right. So we're on, all on board for anticipation, but yes. for what type of trip? What type mm -hmm. of trip makes sense after this year of no to little travel? Well, what's really interesting is uh, this idea that modest vacations, less costly vacations, which is particularly good for a lot of us who, you know, uh, are dealing with, uh, you know, incomes that maybe have been hurt by sure. the pandemic. That is going to give you a tremendous amount of pleasure because think about being holed up at home all this time, right? And all the places we couldn't go. So, we're getting uh, what Dr. Dunn had referred to as a happiness reset, right? Mm -hmm. Where you do not need to take the all around the world trip, like the trip of a lifetime, which you might be kind of inclined to take after being holed up at home. You might think like, let's just blow it out and do that. But actually, a smaller trip, a more, you know, a, a more casual trip closer to home is going to feel absolutely amazing after huh. being locked up all this time. Right. So you might want to start incrementally because you will get used to traveling again, you know, and the more we're used to traveling, the more sort of we lose our ability to savor it and to appreciate it. So, you know, in the same meaningful way. So it might be nice to take some baby steps and do a less expensive, more low key trip for your first, you know, few trips after this is all over. Will that also help with potential travel anxiety? Is that the other side of this coin? You know, it's funny, we did not talk about that. But just speaking from my, you know, just my own personal feeling, I, I would say that's true, because I think it is very difficult to put yourself in this position where you've been isolated for so long and then start, you know, mixing with so many people again and being around a lot of people. So I think, yeah, it's a wonderful way to ease back in. Yeah. It's kind of like when you're, you're first dating someone and just holding their hand is so exciting. I guess yes, that's what exactly right. going like an hour away from your house will be like. And then well, eventually is, you can yeah. go all the way to South Africa or <laughs> London or whatever. You know, I think that's a wonderful analogy. I really do. 
Well, it's a lovely, lovely article. Once again, it's called Travel and the Art of Anticipation. You can read it on the New York Times site or in that paper. Thank you, Stephanie, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you for having me. Up next, we have Jason Cochran here to discuss some of the top news in travel with me. Jason, as you may remember, is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. Okay, here's Jason. Hi, Jason. Nice to have you back, as always. Thanks. So you've been writing on Fromers.com article after article after article about cruising, which begs the question, is cruising coming back soon? It is trying to, but we're seeing patterns develop about you know how they're they're not going to be coming back exactly the way you remember them. And there's there's two major ways that uh, that I've been writing about in the last couple of weeks. The first one is there are some smaller ports, ports that you know kind of are in small towns or don't have a massive uh, harbor space that are rethinking cruising. Now that they've been on pause for about a year and it's time to maybe start welcoming these giant ships back, some ports are saying, yeah, you know, we're not so sure we want them back. Um, some of them are saying we're not sure we want them back right now. Um, right. But all the rest of their tourism is going to be starting up again soon. So uh, it's a notable omission. Um, and I'm talking the first one, the most major one I think that affects American cruisers is Key West and Key West in uh-huh. Florida. Uh, because that has been a staple stop for Western Caribbean cruises. It's an American port, so people are familiar with it. They get off. and But the people in town for years, and I've been hearing this for many years, people in Key West who run the shops are over the cruise ships. They're, they say they, they, they all jump off. They get really too drunk. They don't spend enough money. They don't spend anything on food because they eat on the ship. And they all get right back on. So they're done with them. So they had a referendum in November that essentially voted them out. If they're over a certain size, they don't want them porting there. They were the first one. Um, That might be overturned by the Florida state legislature. It's becoming a political thing. You know, Republicans are saying, we're going to take that power back from you and make you open. So we're going to see what happens with that. But the uh, Grand Cayman is another example. There's a photograph in the article that I wrote about this uh, trend that has a It was from maybe two or three years ago where there's five ships floating in the harbor at Grand Cayman Island. And the Cayman Islands are now thinking, okay, yeah, we're restarting tourism. But we don't see – the guy who who runs tourism said literally, I don't see cruise tourism resuming on any significant level before next year. So Grand Cayman, uh, you say these were small ports, but these were pretty important ports for the cruise industry. I mean, Grand Cayman was the third largest yeah. In, ter- mm-hmm. in terms of the Caribbean, in terms of the ships that dock there. So that's going to mean very, very different Caribbean itineraries when they return. Yeah. And, and as I point out in the article, you know, if a Caribbean port says, we don't want you, there's another port that you can hopefully move your ship to because there's so many different countries. Each one has their own, I think, tolerance limits on what they want to allow to have come back instantly after COVID's done. But in Europe, it's a much more difficult story because when you go to Europe to take a cruise, you're doing it so you unpack once, but then you get to see Venice, you get to see Barcelona all on the same trip from the same stateroom. And if you, some of those cities are not really replaceable. You know, you can't just not go to Venice, say, we'll go to this other city in place of it. So, I I mean, people would argue that many of the Caribbean locations aren't replaceable either, but there's a more similarity to them that I think customers are more willing to accept one instead of another in the Caribbean. So it's going to change. How, how we cruise if this continues, if, if these 
it's not a ban exactly, but you know, if these extended pauses keep going on, in the Caribbean's case, it will mean you're going to be spending more time either at sea or at the private islands, which are owned by the cruise line. So it turns, it makes the cruise ship you choose so much more important because it increases the chances you're going to spend more days on end on the cruise ship. Yeah. So that's one big change. The other big change is you're going to have to prove you're vaccinated, right? For many of these cruise lines. This is something we're hearing from more and more cruise lines. All the major ones we've heard of so far that are restarting have said it. Uh, first, it was Saga, which caters to an older crowd. And so that was more expected of an announcement. I think a lot of people expected because we're talking about the risk group for COVID. Okay, they, they've insisted upon vaccination. But then Royal Caribbean said, hey, we're going to relaunch our new ship too. And we want everyone in there to be vaccinated as well. And then um, Crystal did it as well. Now, there's one other wrinkle to what Royal Caribbean and Crystal are doing. They're not only requiring people to be vaccinated, both crew, of course, and passengers. They're also not coming back to America yet. Nobody, partly because the CDC has not allowed it, but both Crystal and Royal Caribbean have announced other countries will be the places where they'll run their ships. In in the case of the new Royal Caribbean, it'll be uh, out of the city of Haifa, which is on the Mediterranean coast, north coast of Israel. And in the case of Crystal, it's going to be all Bahamas, meaning starting and ending in either Nassau or Bimini. In the case of the Caribbean, it's interesting because a lot of Americans who cruise and love cruising don't have passports. They're going to need one. You now have to have a passport to yeah. start and finish in the Bahamas. Whereas if you had just gone Miami to Miami and gone off little ports, you didn't have to have a passport. They've made arrangements because you're going back on the cruise ship. And Haifa so this is a very interesting to me. Right. And Haifa hasn't been a major cruise port because there's a little bit of um – Unrest in the well, area. A lot of reasons. Yeah. Unrest, it's, you know, it's within spitting range of, of Beirut, you know. So yeah. when there have been troubles between Israel and Lebanon, it, Haifa's been a target. Not that tar- Haifa's a target at the moment. Um, but, you know, it's also Israel's just not a giant market. Right. You know, it just don't have the bodies they need to sustain a giant cruise ship for weeks and weeks on end. But um, all the bodies the, will be vaccinated there. All the bodies will be vaccinated be and they're going to be desperate for vacation. So it might be just fine. But don't forget, too, when these cruise ships come back, they're not going to go at full capacity. You know, they're not instantly going to resume the way it used to be. They're going to ease back up like like everything in our, in our lives. So they may not need, to, you know, to stuff these ships full of people quite yet. They're just trying to get back up on their sea legs, so to speak. Yeah. You, yeah fascinating stuff. And you were just talking about passports and how. A lot of Americans don't have them. In the past, one of the reasons, 55% now, I think, I think about 44% of Americans have passports, although it's a, it's a moving target. It's hard to know. But in the past, they have said it's because passports are expensive. They cost, I think, 145 for a new one right now. And a really interesting new study came out about what passports cost in countries around the world as compared to what the average hourly wage is. And by that rubric, the American passport is very cheap at 145 even though it's one of the most expensive in the world. And so then meaning it takes to- us fewer hours on average to earn back the cost of a fee to, or to pay yes, for the exactly. fee. Yes, exactly. Like if you are a citizen of Libya... Uh, it, it takes 800 hours to get one of their passports. 
uh, because I believe that passport is the most expensive in the world. Well, Syria, costing, I think, is what we wrote. Oh, was it was it Syria? Syria. It was yeah. Syria, yeah. Uh, costing 800 US dollars, which is nuts. Madagascar. Yeah, well, Syria's got some troubles right now. So that and does, Syria has yeah. other troubles too. Yeah. Yes, obviously. Poor, I mean, a lot of people probably dying to leave at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah. Madagascar has free passports, which I thought was just fascinating. Isn't that a good idea? Why not? You know, if you pay your taxes and you're a citizen, why not everyone just get it automatically? I think that should be that way about a lot of things, you know, with ID and things like that here in the US too. If you're a citizen in good stead, you should get your paperwork and use it. Right. But the problem with a a Madag or a Malagasy passport, that's what you call it. Is that what the word is from a Madagascarian? Okay. Yes, isn't that interesting? Malagasy. You can <laughs> just a joke in there. <laughs> it's what is it? I involve the Mandalorian or something. I mean, <laughs> uh, the thing about a, a Malagasy passport is it only gets you into forty-five countries. For everywhere else, you need to get a visa. The most powerful passports right before COVID, because everything is so, so the ones you don't need to get now. into countries with visas. You just the passport alone will get you in. It makes it powerful. Exactly. Yes. Singapore. The citizens of Singapore are welcome everywhere in the world. Exactly. Who hates Singaporeans? Nobody. Maybe the Malagasy do. I don't know their story. But, you know, the Irish used to have the most powerful passport, you know, uh, because it is. It's just basically who do you you don't mind seeing them come into the party. That's the Singaporean. Right. Followed by Japan. Japan can get into only one fewer country than the Singapore folks. America before COVID was number six on the list. Now where we are on the list really always depends on where our per capita of COVID-19 rates are. That's that's really what is, is uh, driving who accepts American visitors. And I know uh, a lot of this has to do too with who the government, the, the host government, thinks are more likely to go back home when their vacation is finished. They think mm. that people from Japan are more likely to go home to Japan. Um, But people from Brazil, which is not a very powerful passport, are more likely to try to get a job in your country. So that's why they put the visa on there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it was a, it was a really fascinating study. So, you know, visit us on fromers.com to look at it. And I'm kind of proud of this because of an article on fromers.com. Well, maybe not because of one, but an article that your friend and mine, Jason Cochran, wrote about the fact that a lot of uh, resorts are still charging resort fees, even though everything they cover, like entrance to the gym and use of the business center and, and the other perks that have been decimated by COVID no longer exist, that, that these resorts were still charging resort fees, even though what they were supposed to cover was gone. So Jason wrote that in an article a couple of months ago. And a nonprofit group representing consumers is now suing MGM resorts over resort fees. And they cited your article, Jason. So congratulations. <clears throat> Thank you. That's pretty gratifying. We don't have anything to do with the case, but it's uh, I, I did see myself quoted in the filing, which gives you a little shiver. You're like, uh oh, am I in trouble? But no, I'm just I'm just one of the pieces of evidence that uh, this case is used to say this is why our case is valid. In this case, you know, uh, Travelers United, which is based in D.C., is saying that MGM Resorts is not being honest about the full cost of a room when it advertises. And Travelers United says if that's true, it would be a violation of the Consumer Protection Procedures Act. And when we were quoted the Fromers article that I wrote in September, 
it's just basically to prove that C, uh, uh, resort fees are not really tied to amenities. That's just a, a charade because when the amenities went away, the resort fees didn't. And uh, that was what my article is about. And this is what the Travelers United has quoted just to prove that there's really no connection between this claim that they pay for all these amenities. Like you claim, you know, they claim the resort fee gets you Wi-Fi and you can go use the pool and have towels. In fact, it pays for none of that because the when those things weren't available to, to us, they were still charging them the resort yeah. fee. Yeah. Do you know when the case will be decided? Is that in your article? I think I read – no, I don't think it's in the article, but I did look – You know, looking at the docket of the D.C. Superior Court where this was filed because MGM runs uh, a hotel out in uh, uh, Maryland on the border of D.C. I think it said the next um, meeting was, I think, in May about this. So it's going to be one of those slow hauls. But there's a lot of these court cases floating around right now. I, almost every single um, attorney general uh, in states across the country are now looking into them. Yeah. I think resort fees days are numbered, not just for those legal reasons and for the fact that no other country really does these, especially in Europe. It's where it's illegal. Um, but people are fed up with them. Virgin Hotels is taking over the old Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas, and they're making a very a lot of noise about how they're not going to charge resort fees at the new Virgin, which is opening later this month. They're very, very proud of it. They're making it a point of pride and, in fact, a point of difference that they want customers to go to them because they don't use resort fees. And I think when you have giant companies now starting to you know, uh, to, to use resort fees against each other, it's sort of the beginning of the end because it's starting to get become extremely distasteful and look pretty bad if you decide to stick by a resort fee. So we're going to see how this one plays out culturally yeah. as well as legally. It's going to be very interesting. Well, talking about giant companies – Disney. Disneyland has set a target. They haven't set a specific date, have they, for reopening? Not yet. There was. There's a reason for it. You know, now, just to set this up, people are like, I thought Disney was open. No, Disney in Florida opened in July. Disney in California was going to try to open last July, but the state said, no, 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 you're not allowed to. There are a lot of reasons for this, but no one's really sure because the state of California, where Disneyland is, has not been forthcoming about the precise reasons why it didn't want to just open using the same model that Florida apparently has, has done pretty successfully. So we didn't know why. But finally, the, the state of California issued some uh, some rules that said, okay, if you get your COVID infection rates to this level and you know, such and such happens medically in your county, then you can open up. And by all targets, that will happen within a few weeks um, at Disneyland. But there's, of course, there's the issue of now they've got to bring all their staff back, many of whom they had furloughed last year. They've got to buy food. They've got to retrain everybody on how to do COVID protocol. So they're not announcing a date yet, but they're thinking late April that Disneyland will, will open. And it will be different than Florida. The, the, if you've never been to either – there's lots of space in Florida, but Disneyland, which opened first, was where the mistakes were made in design. It's a much tighter place. You're shoulder to shoulder, so you can't – have as much space to spread out as you can in Florida, which I think was one of the reasons that California was hesitating on opening the park because you'd have to not open this, but open that. And, you know, they're already saying we're not going to let you have dark rides, meaning the ones that are completely inside, you have to have your ride half out or half in or all out. So all these things are now being worked out, but Disneyland is finally due to come back in late April. Um, and they are starting to bring people back. I went by the other day and uh, there was, there's a, there's a shopping district that I was checking out. And there were people inside the park in uniform, what? which hadn't been there for months. So they are starting to gear back up. Do we know if they will be charging the same amount, even though certain 
things in the park will be shuttered? Almost certainly, because that's what Florida has done. Florida did not have all the entertainment available, for example. We've wrote articles about how things have been scaled back, but the prices stayed the same and people have been paying it. So I guess so, the advice yeah. is the same that, as the, what you gave for Florida, which may be now is not the time to go to Disneyland because it's so damn expensive, especially if you're not going to be able to do everything that you should be able to do. Yeah, it won't be the complete experience. It'll be for the fans who have just missed it so desperately. They can't wait to get back in there. And in Disneyland's case, we're hearing that only California residents will be allowed to at first. I'm assuming you can bring a plus one if they're from another state, but... So you may not even be able to go to Disneyland if you're not a Californian for the short term. Huh. So interesting. So interesting. Well, talking about things coming back, the last week, I had the delight of going to the new version of the Frick Museum in New York City. For anybody who's ever been to New York, uh, the Frick is probably one of the one of the places that people are proudest of knowing about. It's kind of like a hidden secret for art lovers. It's this uh, uh, it's this Gilded Age mansion mm. uh, that was owned by Henry Clay Frick, who was a big steel and coke magnet, who filled it with three of the only 24 Vermeers in the world, some of Rembrandt's best paintings, extraordinary impressionist works. I mean, for a man who only went to school for three years in his life, he had an incredible eye for art. Uh, but the mansion was falling apart. They really, really needed to renovate it. So they decided to close it for a couple of years. And they have taken over the most unlikely structure to be the Frick 2.0. Mm. I'm talking about the building that Marcel Breuer built for the Whitney Museum when it opened in the 1960s. And it's this purposefully brutalist structure, which means that anything that is modern, they made modern. You go up in the stairwells. And the walls are just pucked with big holes, holes this double the size of a quarter. And the, the it's all very flat and bright and so different than the mansion that these artworks have lived in for years. But that kind of works. It's a fascinating experience. You see the the artworks that you used to see surrounded by velvet drapes and with gorgeous works of furniture below them. And they're just on these concrete walls. And the contrast, it's its an interesting thing. I, you, you kind of, I felt like I was rediscovering these, these works. And because they have more space at the Frick, the curators are having a lot of fun playing with the museum-going experience. I remember a couple of years back, I did an interview with somebody who had done work on what people should do when they go to museums. People often go to museums with the sense of obligation, that they have to try and see as many things as possible. And that makes the museum experience really overwhelming because you go into a gallery and, oh my God, there's 20 great works of art there. And what do you look at? And it just feels exhausting and not not that much fun. And this uh, person who wrote a piece on how to go to a museum said, 
when you go into a gallery, choose one piece of art. Just ignore the rest. Get rid of that obligation and stand in front of it for two to three minutes and really let it work on you. And it's a wonderful way to go to museums. And the the Frick curators have kind of built that type of experience into the new Frick Museum. They have several rooms where there only is one or two works of art in the whole room, which telegraphs to the visitor, oh, this is an important work of art. You should spend time with just this. And it makes it such a more pleasant experience because, you know, in front of this important work of art, there's a lot more room. So you don't have to worry about crowding. Everybody can see it. It's just a brilliantly well done museum. And they've got really, really good an audio guide done by two of the curators who are great storytellers. And they've done the audio guide to pretty much every single work of art in the museum. So you know how you go into a regular museum and there's usually like a crowd in front of the one Mm -hmm. work that has audio on it? doesn't happen there. Uh, Plus the social distancing right now really does give you your one-on-one time, doesn't it? Absolutely. So it's made visiting the Frick so lovely. So bravo. And this will be in place for the next two years. So very soon you'll be able to return to New York City. This is a good reason to come. This in itself is a reason to visit New York. It really is an extraordinary experience of visiting it if you're an art lover. And they also do a great job focusing on the decorative arts that they had in the collection and telling the stories. Uh, the story of Marie Antoinette's bureau is, is pretty darn interesting. And it's, it's right there. All right. Other news. Kayak. Kayak, the hotel uh, buying site or the, the hotel room Gosh, how do you explain kayak? Why Aggregator. Am I you know, it's it's a search engine of search engines, essentially, right? It pulls yes. you know, all of these different results from all these different sites for hotels and airfare, uh, things like that, together, so you can see in one spot. Is that yeah. a good way to say it? That's a good way to say it. So why don't you go on? What what have they done that kind of surprised us? Well, they bought a hotel in Miami Beach, which I think is interesting because they're supposed to be, you know, selling you other people's hotels in yeah. an unbiased fashion. And suddenly now they've got a dog in the fight. Which, yeah. And they're saying uh, that's going to be the first of many hotels that they buy. Yeah. Are they, are they getting out of the kayaking, you know, online business? Who knows? But They've, they've overtaken an older property a couple blocks in from the beach, in Miami Beach. And uh, it's going to be open, I think, on the 11th of April. Which, I mean, what, is, what does an aggregator running a hotel mean? Does that mean every single room is going to be like a different hotel? It's like this one's like a Marriott. And this one's like the W. Yeah. <laughs> you just go through the – there's only 52 rooms. But no, it's going to be a normal hotel. They're going to do some, some, uh, some of the modern – mid-priced hotels, especially in Europe, are doing things like allowing you to control your TV with your phone uh, or change the thermostat with your with a you know tablet. It'll do all of that, which is pretty common, I think, these days. But otherwise, I don't think it's going to be a super digital experience. Yeah. Well, it kind of gives the lie to the idea that these aggregator sites are impartial. I mean, we know that sometimes they put higher in search those hotels that give them a bit bigger cut. Mm -hmm. So, Well, Zach Thompson, who wrote this article for us, asked them, hey, what's going to go on? You're supposed to be, you know, can we trust you? 
um, will you be putting your hotel at the top? Will you be getting preferential treatment to the new Kayak Hotel? And uh, their representative said, we'll show Kayak Miami Beach when we think it's relevant to consumer activity on Kayak, which is a yes, which a, we will show put this on top in front of everybody else's hotel. So if you ever see a Kayak Hotel on Kayak, you'll know how that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. And also you got to wonder, what if people post a negative review? Will they allow that? up. I mean, they're in charge. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. One final quick quick thing to talk about. We have been covering on fromers.com a lot of the destinations that are using this travel pause to make the visitor experience better and also to do long neglected work. And Jerusalem in Israel is doing that. We got a fascinating photo of guys hanging off the Western Wall with these massive syringes injecting liquid rock between the ancient stones because they need to do that to shore the darn thing up. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. They're going to be signposting this famous path that after uh, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. He, in disguise, met two, uh, two of the disciples on this path and had an important talk with them. So they're finally going to be helping pilgrims who want to trod this famous path uh, to better understand what they're seeing, not just the history involving Jesus Christ, but also they're going to point out an ancient Roman bath and a can't remember a monolithic tomb and a there couple some of Byzantine ruins in there too, you know, because Jerusalem is just a layer cake of history. Yeah, yeah. So it's at that some other museums are expanding. Uh, and making themselves more accessible to travelers with disabilities. So more reasons to go to the Holy Land. Very interesting stuff happening. You can zoom Even to the top of the country across. and get yourself to Haifa. <laughs> take, take the new Royal Caribbean. <laughs> right, right. Okay. On that note, we will say goodbye. We thank you uh, so much for listening to this podcast. We're, we hope you'll visit us at fromers.com. We hope you'll Subscribe to our newsletter, which is uh, the best way to get the travel news because we cover it in an impartial manner that I think is is culturally relevant, uh, that covers cuisine, that covers history. So even if you're not traveling right now, uh, we think what we're writing is damn interesting. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yes. And we worked very hard doing it. Uh, Damn straight. That's all right. I'm going to end this interview so we can go back to working hard. <laughs> so to those of you who are traveling, whatever that means in your life right now, even if it's just from the living room to the kitchen, may we wish you a hearty bon voyage. We'll see you next week. Watching K.